Hello, this is Seb Coe and welcome to my Extraordinary Tales and Extraordinary Times podcast. So far in this series, we've had a good old romp across the sporting landscape. I've talked to the creator of a new sporting series, a world champion athlete and a groundbreaking mountaineer. Today, I'm going to focus on another vital component in our sporting ecosystem, the brands that partner with our leagues, our championships and our talent. Joining me today is one of the world's most influential business leaders. After joining Unilever in 1985 as a graduate marketing trainee, he went on to work in North America and Asia for the leading consumer goods company. In January 2019, he stepped up onto the podium in gold medal position to assume the role as CEO of Unilever. And here I should appropriately declare an interest because my guest today is also a football buddy who also shares a blind obsession for Chelsea. Good morning, Alan Jope. Morning, Seb. Nice to be here. Thanks very much for the generous introduction. Uh, I am a Chelsea fan, but of course, it's always just slightly behind Glasgow Rangers. I think most Chelsea fans would accept that. We've always had that reciprocal sort of tie, haven't we, between the two clubs? I don't actually know where it stems from. Well, as a, as, as a Scotsman, it saves money on uh, the colour of blue clothes that you have to buy. <laughs> OK, that, that, that I get. That I get. As a Yorkshireman, I get that sentiment. Uh, Alan, I'm going to start with a quote and then a start of a 10. And the quote, When my wife gives me time off for good behaviour, I usually head off on a motorcycle adventure in some far-flung space or for a game of football, followed by the pub with my football mates. Okay, the start of a 10. What motorbike and what's a self-respecting Scott doing supporting Chelsea? <laughs> um, well, uh, a few years ago, uh, three buddies and I um, partnered up and uh, I think honouring our midlife crises, um, we rode uh, motorbikes across the Sahara and then we subsequently went around the Gobi Desert in Mongolia and down through Southern Africa, Patagonia, uh, messed around in Alaska a little bit. And we concluded after a few of these romps um, that we would uh, take on something a bit more coherent. So we bought four identical bikes in Alaska uh, and set our destination as Sydney. And every uh, 10 months or so, we disappear for a couple of weeks and uh, ride. So they're, they're BMW F800 GS Adventures. Uh, and they're now in Cape Town. So we've ridden them all down through North America from Anchorage, through Central America, Latin America. We've just shipped them actually um, to Cape Town from the tip of Latin America. And uh, destination is uh, going up the east coast of Africa and then over through Asia to, to Sydney. And it's a right good laugh. Well, it might be a right good laugh. I, I feel a reality television show coming on. No, uh, it, actually, part of, the th- part of the reason for doing it is uh, to get away from uh, the hurly-burly of our daily lives and just spend some time uh, in close friendship and avoiding uh, cameras and, and journalists and the like. So no, this is a strictly private affair. Unless of course oh, you'd like, unless of course you'd like to sponsor it, then we could definitely do something. <laughs> I get that. I, I sort of saw that as a sort of slightly light-hearted quote. I had no idea quite quite how seriously you took your cycling. Well, the 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 other end of the quote, the football, is where the light-hearted bit is. So um, I was a, a rugby player as a kid, not a football player, and. Um, Let's just say that my 
central defensive skills would probably be described as robust uh, more than skillful. Doug Rugby. Well, yeah, very good. I like it. I like to think Alan Hansen, but that's flattering myself. <laughs> well, of course, Doug Rugby did a stint at Chelsea as well. Yeah. Look, Alan, all my previous guests have chronicled their fascinating and, and frankly, very diverse careers. But running through them all is a really crucial role, uh, and that's the role of their families, you know, that have worked alongside them in their journey. My hunch is that you're not going to be bucking that trend in this conversation. Oh, that's an unexpected direction, Seb. Uh, very much so. Um, uh, I hadn't expected that question, but let me tell you the first couple of things that spring to mind. Most of my values um, were set by my parents, as were all of us. Um, and so um, I find it very difficult to put up with um, uncivilized or rude conduct. And that came from my mum and dad. Um, also, my, my dad in particular and my mum had a, a bit of a no cry babies, no sissies um, approach, uh, which I've uh, always kind of held on to. But The Rock uh, today um, is certainly my uh, wonderful wife, Rosie. Uh, we've been together since we were 18 and uh, we've got three, we're blessed with three great kids, truly citizens of the world. Two were born in Thailand, one in Chicago, one's currently working in Dublin and uh, two are studying, one in British Columbia and young Angus is up at St. Andrews. Um, and so we are blessed with a, a great family. And I think, Seb, you know, at times when uh, you're put in a position of great responsibility and it can get stressful, um, that rock of a family um, to remind you of your shortcomings and to lean on when things are tough is, uh, is an absolute gift. And uh, I certainly appreciate my family. Thanks for starting there, by the way. That's an unusual uh, an unusual place to begin well, and a pleasure to talk I, about. I do like to come out of left field occasionally. Let, let me pick up on that theme or one element of that theme because you've talked about uh, tough times. Uh, I don't think there's probably anywhere else I can start this interview in a way than the impact that COVID-19 is having on all of us. It's interesting, actually. They sort of We started off by saying it's the great leveller. Actually, I'm not sure ultimately when we review this, it will be the great level. I think it's going to hit those communities who are probably uh, less able to deal with these shocks. And I think there are, there are probably other issues that we, we need to look at long term. But the immediate challenge for you, I guess, is having 150,000 staff globally. Um, and the situation, I guess, must be having quite a profound impact, not just on the business, but the way you're conducting business. Yeah, um, well, let me first make the obligatory um, point up front, which is coronavirus and the impact in COVID-19 is first and foremost a human tragedy um, where people are losing their lives and communities are being destroyed. And uh, what began has begun as a biological uh, crisis and then became a social crisis as we all locked down is surely going to become an economic crisis and we're anticipating a period of sustained recession for the world. As a global company, um, we of course saw the effects starting in China. I lived in China for five years at the time of the second wave of epidemics there. Um, you, were you were chairman out there, weren't you? Yeah, I was, running the, I was running just our North Asian business there. Yeah. 
<clears throat> China, Korea, Japan, etc. And um, we watched <clears throat> the behavior change there 10 years ago, repeating itself in Wuhan, then across China. And then when it came to Italy, it became apparent this was a global, uh, global problem. So would you like me to just say a word or two about um, how we've, um, what it's meant for you? Well, I, I, I was going to ask you just, you know, how are you surviving it uh, and, and frankly thriving it as well? Because, you know, I know from my own challenges around world athletics and at CSM, you know, this has been anything other than a walk in the park. Yeah. Um, well, look, we run um, what we call a multi-stakeholder model of business. And um, let me explain what that means. It, it's predicated on a belief that if we look after our people and look after our customers and look after our business partners and try to act in a way that's responsible for society and the planet, then our shareholders, the owners of the company, will be rewarded, actually superiorly rewarded as a consequence of that model so that shareholder returns are an outcome of looking after all the other stakeholders in the chain. It's the opposite in a way of a shareholder primacy uh, model. And that did shape our response to coronavirus. So of the 150,000 direct employees that we have, we've had 50,000 um, factory workers and 30,000 field sales people who have kept working right through, um, obviously uh, creating as safe as an environment for them as we possibly can. And then we moved to 70,000 people working from home overnight on March the 13th. We went for a global mandatory indefinite lockdown. And uh, as we've all discovered, uh, we don't need to be in the office. So I see a future where we'll have lots of flexibility for our office workers um, to uh, partly work from home, partly work in the office. We then thought, now what are we gonna do for the community? And we donated 100 million euros of product because people needed the hygiene products that we've got, the um, food products that we have. And then we made a 500 million euro commitment from our balance sheet to pay our small suppliers quickly so that they would feel, um, be able, they would feel able to stay in business um, through the liquidity pressures um, and so on. So we then took, began to uh, mobilize. Our, our portfolio is naturally hedged. People are eating a lot less um, ice cream outside, as you can imagine, um, uh, fewer tourists, less recreation. But on the other hand, people are using more of our surface cleaners, hand hygiene products, etc. So Unilever is in a very privileged position that our portfolio, our conservative financial position and the quality of our team means that we will come through this coronavirus uh, incident um, just fine but not to say that we haven't had our own share of uh, difficult moments. Let me pick up, I'm really interested in this response because I, I want to just sort of pick up on, on two of the themes you've raised. Clearly, you've got a lot of people working for home. I guess for many, that's a liberating experience, but I also guess the flip side of the coin is that for some, that's, that's a real challenge and quite a torture. Yes, very much so. I think there's been a lot spoken about and written about this. Uh, on one hand, uh, we've had people who are finding the not having to do a lot of business travel, not doing a commute. It's extremely liberating and an unlock of capacity. But there, I would say, as many people, and the, the kind of story I remember is one guy in our company telling me that he had spent several weeks working, sitting on the edge of a bed, using an ironing board as his desk, 
So not everyone is privileged to have, you know, nice... And it's easily forgotten, you know, for those of us that do have gardens. There are people who are really struggling with uh, kids running around at home to, to stay focused uh, on work that they enjoy. Um, and so our approach of going back to um, working in a more formal office environment will be driven by one extreme an abundance of caution. We're going to go back very slowly. Number two, um, it will be... Um, led by people's own wishes, um, which, is, which is to say we don't think there's a single essential office job that has to be done from an office. And so rather we will let people come back to the office in their own good time um, based on how much they are or are not struggling with working from home. And then the final point is it will remain flexible. I don't think anyone's going to go back. I certainly don't intend to go back to five days a week uh, in the office. Look, I, I think that has to be a very accurate assessment you know i think we've all probably taken time out to think about our own circumstances the circumstances of our businesses and on what the post-pandemic world looks like but let me pick up on another theme that you touched upon and i think it's a really important one my instinct and and i i think i hope i reflect what you said is also that this crisis has resulted in an acknowledgement that there has to be more responsibility in businesses than just shareholder value. There, there has to be purpose. Now, I think good businesses have probably been extolling those virtues and living, living to that ethos for some time. But do you think that that is a theme that's going to quicken into the post-pandemic world? We have absolutely no doubt on that. Our business was founded over 100 years ago by a guy called uh, William Lever. And he defined the mission of the firm way back then in the so 1860s, 1870s, as quotes, to make cleanliness commonplace and lessen the load for women. Those were his mission, those were his mission statements. And gosh, they do seem still relevant today. We believe there's a growing business case, lots of evidence, that companies that run themselves on a sustainable footing are starting to generate superior returns. We know in our own case that our purposeful brands are growing much more quickly than the rest of the portfolio. We know that uh, responsible sourcing takes out cost. We know that it lessens risk. And for sure, we know it's a magnet for talent. There's a whole generation of young people who care more about the values of the company uh, that they're joining than any, anything else. And you know, the coronavirus is not going to mean that the other big problems in the world go away. And there's really two. Most of the really big problems in the world are derivative of either climate change and the associated degradation of nature, waste in the environment, loss of species. And the other big one is inequality, whether that's gender inequality or particularly um, income inequality or uh, sadly, as we're seeing racial inequality. And we are absolutely driven as a company to make sure that our operations don't just result in selling more soap or selling more uh, ice cream, but rather uh, make a positive contribution to climate change and issues of inequality in the world. When we do that, we're a more successful business and I do believe that there's a generation of young people out there who heard warnings about pandemics being ignored by the grown-ups, who have heard warnings about climate change being ignored by the grown-ups, 
and who've heard warnings about inequality being ignored by the grown-ups and they will not tolerate a back-to-normal view of business post this pandemic. But, but it is also, Alan, I think my instinct that the, the brunt of this recession, or certainly the downturn, not a recession yet, but certainly a downturn, is that young people are probably going to take the full force of this. Now, I know you've done a lot of work with the United Nations uh, around creating job markets, particularly for young people. What do you think the, the lessons there for governments, given that they are going to be dealing with a very heightened level of unemployment amongst younger people? Yeah. Um, actually, I think the point you made earlier, Seb, is right, which is that those um, people who are most vulnerable are the people who are going to be most impacted by um, this, uh, the, the consequences, the economic crisis that's going to follow the biological crisis. And so it, the people who don't enjoy good health, people who are uh, living in poverty, people who live in the poorest parts of the world. You know, if you imagine the effect this is having in places like China, in places like Italy, in places like the UK and North America, imagine when it takes hold properly in the favelas of Brazil and the townships of Africa and the um, slums of India and the refugee camps around the Middle East. Those people are extremely exposed. Now, when we then come zoom in a bit closer to home, I think this is a particular crisis for young people um, in, in Britain and all policy responses um, by government have to focus on job creation as a central part of the solution. We will certainly be advocating for that and in our own small way, even as we look at having to reshape parts of Unilever, we are not slowing down our uh, recruitment of management trainees and interns. Um, that's one small contribution that we were able to make um, because this will be felt by young people. I think there are two observations that you've made, which I think will have a resonance with maybe business leaders who haven't managed their way through something as challenging as this before. First, clearly purpose brands uh, are the ones that are going to survive and, and, and actually thrive. I think you've also pretty much said that the trusted businesses, the trusted brands will thrive. What other lessons do you think there are out? If you were sitting in, in front of a few younger business leaders, given the, the length of time you have been in business, what are the other things that you would advise them at this moment to, to be thinking about? Yeah. Um, so I think there's two different groups that you uh, uh, allude to there, Seb. One is... Um, people maybe running small businesses who would learn from all the mistakes that big businesses have made over the years, yeah. but also young people coming into the, into the workforce. I think uh, for the former, um, it is the, the, we're already very um, much getting weak signals of what the future is going to look like. Um, you know, you hesitate to use the word recession. We don't, we're sure there's going to be a recession. Um, and so value for money in your offering and having products and services that are accessible at lower price points are absolutely uh, going to be uh, an essential part of the future, number one. Number two, the value, value proposition. Value proposition. Number two, in our case, hygiene. People are becoming preoccupied with hygiene and anything in that space um, is going to be uh, particularly important. Number three, cocooning at home. Uh, we know that people see the home as a safe place 
a safe place for eating, a safe place for socializing, um, a safe place for learning and a safe place for working. And uh, so businesses can tap into that. So whatever sector of the economy you're in, you can look for these weak signals from the future and start orientating your business uh, in that direction. For young people entering the workforce, now's the time to upskill. You know, the skills that are, we're, we've seen a 288% increase in consumption of our own internal online learning platform by our people these last few months. So the people are doing three times as much learning um, as they were uh, prior to this. And I applaud that. We've been guiding people to do that because in a world that's changing so fast, skills um, uh, for the future are going to be um, absolutely essential, including, by the way, marketing skills that take us away from very traditional forms of marketing and much more into generating content around things like sports, your your world. You're, I'm going to touch on sport in a few moments, but I, I just want to ask you a very simple one. Is this your toughest challenge since you picked up a business career? It's, it's not the toughest challenge I've had. I've been in markets where we've faced um, more difficult situations. It's the most complex challenge, though, because it's going to affect every single aspect of our life. And I happen to have uh, found myself in a position where um, everything that happens globally, one way or another, ends up um, on our top teams table. Um, so it's exceptionally complex, um, but I think following a few principles means it won't necessarily be the most difficult. Okay, let's talk sport. Yes, please. I, I don't think either of us will... Uh, will Decline on that one. Uh, no, exactly. Uh, look, Unilever has an extraordinary portfolio uh, of global and, and local partnerships in sport, uh, and you tap into uh, and enthuse a huge group of passionate sporting fans, you know, across multiple demographics and, and, and truly global. What are your guiding principles uh, in using sport, uh, its stars as a platform to, to engage with your customers? Yeah. So uh, forgive me for giving a slightly convoluted answer to this, which is rooted in the fact that... I like convoluted answers. Okay, good. I'm sure there'll be something here you can pick up on. Um, really, marketing of brands hasn't changed very much for 100 years until recently. Um, it was centered in creating mass segments of the population, developing mass market brands, selling them in mass market channels, often known as things like supermarkets, and sharing what that brand stands for through mass communication, also known as advertising. And technology is disrupting all of that. Technology is allowing us to target um, micro groups of, uh, of people, even you know, groups of one. Um, the internet is allowing us to um, have a much more democratized channels of distribution through e-commerce. Um, and technology is allowing people to screen out irritating advertising from the, uh, from the media that they consume. So I'm sure uh, you've watched Last Dance on Amazon. Um, and I'm I have also, indeed. I'm, oh, sorry, on Netflix. And I'm also sure that you didn't see any advertising in there. Um, and so I think we're on an inexorable journey where annoying interruption-based advertising will play a lesser and lesser role in, uh, in the suite of tools available to brand marketers. 
And we're desperately um, shifting our focus away from interruption-based advertising to content, things that's, that people choose to engage with. Um, and they typically choose to engage with content because either it taps a passion point or it's extraordinarily useful. So at one end of the spectrum, the extraordinarily useful, we're generating content around recipe ideas, even things like Cleanopedia, how you clean things, get stains out. It's functionally useful and it draws uh, consumers. But the more interesting bit for me is where we're able to tap consumers' passion points and they can choose to consume branded content. And, you know, it is, unfortunately, some of the stereotypes are true that, you know, men and women love sport. Uh, men and women love romance and dating. Actually, food and recipes is a huge passion point for people. But that's the role that sport will play in our, in our, in our company's marketing mix. It is a point of passion for so many people that they will choose to engage with high quality content. So I don't really believe very much in sticking a logo on a shirt or on a <clears throat> piece of hoarding around the, the side of a ground, um, only other than to the extent it allows us to go ahead and then make interesting content that we can serve up to people. Let me pick up on something that you've also said, which actually for me had a, struck a real chord, having spent the first two years of my presidency of world athletics doing nothing more than rewriting a constitution, creating integrity units, and, and trying to escape a rather unhappy, sad episode in the history of my sport. How much store do you, as a trusted brand, place on the well-run, good governance structures of a sport before you would be prepared to partner with them? I think um, the answer to that, Seb, is that we believe in long-term partnerships. Um, and so in every case, whether it's our work with um, soccer, our work with rugby, um, even our work with racing, we have stuck with those for a long period of time. And if you're gonna be with someone for a long period of time, you better be sure of their values. And maybe the best example of that is the work that Dove Men Plus Care has done uh, with the sport of rugby. Um, and it was because we see such alignment between the values of the brand and the values of rugby, which I think remains a highly honorable sport um, that, we, that we chose to get involved. Um, there are sports we've specifically um, stayed away from because they lack the quality governance and the regulation to be sure that it is fair competition. And so I think the way to answer your question is to say, we're in it for the long term in these partnerships and you only want to get into long-term partnerships with people with whom you have common values. Look, we're, we're all sort of in the predicting business at the moment and trying to predict the new normal and what it looks like. What does the future of brands in sport look like? Um, I think it, in the same way as technology has been a disruptor of our traditional views of marketing, technology will be an accelerator of the participation of brands in sport. Um, technology will allow brands to take basic sporting content and turn it into fully immersive experiences where you're able to create your own augmented reality experience uh, with the sport that you're particularly passionate about. Technology will allow you to 
consume the angle on that sport, the backstories um, in ways that you might otherwise not have been able to. And we can already see that happening. We can see it happening in, uh, in e-augmentation. We can see it happening in gaming. We can see it happening in all kinds of the explosion of sporting documentaries that are happening. Um, and so I think that, that the convergence of brands needing fantastic content and technology allowing sports to massively amplify the amount of content that they can produce is a beautiful intersection. And that's the space that we'll be fishing in. Are there any avenues that you think that you, know, you may have dismissed in the past that suddenly become, during this period of reflection, even more apparent? Um, I think we have discovered that there is an opportunity to get people participating in a, in a massive scale that we had overlooked a little bit. And so we've worked with those generous and wonderful Chelsea players uh, to produce um, great content of them working out at home and showing drills that um, all of us can do when we're cooped up. Um, and we've had, we've had similar uh, work that we've done, in this case more with dance troops, uh, with workout um, uh, celebrities. And I think the, this sort of sedentary nature that we've had forced on us for the last couple of months um, has, has opened our eyes to the power of our sports partnerships to create engagement and involvement for us common sports fans. That's, I think, the biggest change I've seen. And the Chelsea partnership, of course, is activated around uh, Shaw and Rexon. It is. So our, thank you for that plug, Seb. I mean, we've got this uh, deodorant brand worldwide. In most parts of the world, it's called Rexona. In the UK, it's called Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's platform, um, which is a wonderful one, is, is the more you move, the more you live. And the reason it's a good one is it addresses a social issue of sedentary lifestyles. Um, and it directly links to what the product does, right? So if you've got, a, if you've got a, an excellent antiperspirant deodorant, encouraging people to move is a sensible thing to do. So um, we, you know, a, a great little story is um, our UK business a couple of years ago ran out of money to uh, keep advertising Rexona for Men. And the only thing that we kept doing was we kept up our partnership with, uh, with football. And it was centered on Chelsea, but it wasn't only Chelsea working with uh, Man City and some other great teams. And um, we just produced small amounts of content with the players um, around the matches, uh, having you know your, your, your pressure moment uh, from sure. And wouldn't you know it, the, with, with really a massive reduction in traditional marketing investment, because we hit the nail on the head with this passion point, the brand did fantastically well. It kept growing, it grew market share, it grew brand equity. And we were uh, thrilled. It really was one of the proof points on the power of sports um, in, our, in our overall marketing mix. Sadly, I could go on chatting away for hours here, um, but I, I can't. Uh, but I'm going to just tease out uh, another thought which has come out of this and, and to me is, is quite an obvious one and probably quite a profound one at the moment. You spent a large part of your business life working overseas, you worked in and operated in some quite complex uh, political environments, and I'm not passing judgments either way, we're not here to discuss comparative government. Uh, but I know that you have, in the odd interview, shared your concerns uh, about the rise of 
popular nationalism, just insofar as it can be a drag anchor on global development. And certainly, I guess, the collaborative responses that we need, uh, particularly around the crisis that we've just uh, had to deal with. You know, um, I really believe that business is, should be, and can be a force for good in the world. And there is no doubt whatsoever that global trade has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, even only in the last four decades. The retreat to nationalism is misguided as it impacts global trade. And let me give you just one example of that. The reason why our supply chains have held up through the coronavirus crisis is not because they're local, it's because they're global. Uh, this idea that if you bring all your supply inputs and your market onshore, that somehow or other you insulate yourself from the winds of global politics and global economics is utter nonsense. Um, the world has been well served by global trade. The world has been well served by the global movement of goods and a retreat to nationalism, a breakdown of free trade, again, will damage, not people like you and me, Seb, who are gonna be just fine, it will damage those people in society who are most exposed and most vulnerable. And then as a final point, the big problems in the world, be it climate change, be it inequality, be it coronavirus, can only be solved by multilateral partnerships across sectors and across countries. So it's going to require government, business and civil society to collaborate to solve these problems. And it will only work if it's done on a multilateral basis across countries as well. So as you can tell from my tenor, I'm extremely worried about a retreat to nationalism. I'm extremely worried about breakdown of global trade because it would hurt those who can least afford to be hurt. Let me uh, finish on a slightly lighter note if I may. Yeah, that was a bit heavy, that one, wasn't no, it? It's no, it's not heavy. It's profound. And, and in my personal view, absolutely on the money. Um, 2021, you're a sports fan. It's a heavily rejigged year. We've got an Olympic Games now that we didn't think we were going to have. Yeah, Alliance Tour, I hope. We've got Alliance Tour and we've, and we've got the Europeans, uh, European Football Championship. Are there, Euro, are there Euros happening? I've been carefully watching the Scottish wow. football team's schedule and I noticed that one on there. I, I think as of this moment, they are, they are, they're certainly slated for, for 2021. Um, what will Unilever be doing to embrace that fantastic opportunity because I mean it's a it's, it's it will be like glugging your way through a quart of cream I mean I, I don't know a year that's yeah. gonna have quite such rich content in sport yeah well first of all uh Seb from from your lips to God's ears I really hope that uh, we're back in a position where these mass participation sports events can happen yeah. they are so important for the world they're such a symbol of coming together, of collaboration, of international cooperation, of sportsmanship at the highest level and of excellence. Um, and so I really, really hope they go ahead. Here's what we'll be doing. We will be looking for opportunities to um, uh, amplify the partnerships that we already have around sports like football and rugby. We'll be looking for new opportunities with new sports and we'll certainly be using the gigantic audiences that these events generate 
to uh, build presence for our brands. And um, most of it, although it will be a commercial opportunity, I hope that the sporting calendar of 2021 is most of all a humanitarian opportunity that it shows we can overcome biological and economic threats and get back to the business of enjoying um, international collaboration and the incredibly positive values of sports and sportsmanship. You are right, and I hope you're proven to be right. Alan, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank, thanks very much, sir. It's a pleasure. Stay well. And to you. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSN 